A huge show this week on the Emerge Cricket Podcast with a heap of action on and off the field. We discuss the shock news surrounding the T20 captaincy change in UAE, the Dutch hosting Pakistan, League 2, T20 leagues from the associate view, and a whole lot more. As always, the show is made possible by our Emerging Cricket patrons. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Up next, plenty to talk about in the emerging world. Another week in the Emerging Cricket Game, all to discuss here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, live and on Sport FM in Perth. Nick Skinner is with me, Daniel Beswick. Tim Cutler is, uh, well, he's got his nose to the grindstone preparing for a T20 World Cup qualifier in Vanuatu early next month for the 2024 tournament. Uh, But Nick, the pair of us today have a fair bit to talk about. Uh, Plenty of goings on, on and off the field. Some not great. Uh, other bits a little bit better to talk about, but first of all, how's things uh, in your part of the world? Oh, good, mate. Good. Uh, we've got a lovely shining day, 14 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Life's good here in the North Atlantic. I've finally uh, mostly sorted out all our administrative things, you know, bank accounts and, and whatnot. Um, so hopefully uh, life will be getting a bit easier. And uh, yeah, looking, looking for employment uh, in the very near future. Any prospects at the moment as you uh, try and uh, yeah sort through the the workforce of a, of another country? It was hard enough uh, all of us finding a job here in in Australia at one point, but uh, yeah, what w- what's it like in uh, in Iceland? Well, the tourist industry has rebounded, which is good for hospitality workers like me because it means there's always a, a demand. So I've put some feelers out and, and things are looking good at the moment. So yeah, fingers crossed. Let's talk some emerging cricket this week. And I think we'll start with some of the bad news, I suppose, uh, heading into the Asia Cup qualifier and T20 World Cup campaigns for United Arab Emirates. It was news that when I woke up and read, I didn't quite believe what I was reading so much so that I rubbed my eyes and double-checked that what I read was true. But Ahmed Raz has been stood down from T20I captaincy. Uh, It was done just days before the Asia Cup qualifier had started, uh, less than two months out from a T20 World Cup here in Australia. It had looked like his career had kind of gone full circle after missing out on selection at the 2015 World Cup in Australia to come back here down under to play as captain. That's what we thought was going to happen, albeit for a, a press release in what was somewhat of a word salad telling us that his captaincy in the T20i game would be given to CP Rizwan. He would keep the one-day international captaincy. We'll talk about UAE's League 2 campaign at the moment, but were you in a similar shock when you read this news, Nick? It came from nowhere, and, and we've got plenty to talk about in regards to this, but it was definitely a decision that I did not see coming. Well, it did come from nowhere, and it's interesting that they talked about succession planning as being the stated reason for it. <laughs> when I mean, do you really do succession planning by changing your captain a few days before a, an important qualifying tournament? That that seems like a weird way of doing it. And when the captain is a year older than Ahmed Raza. Well, also that as part of your succession plan. <laughs> yeah, is where you know is, is Ahmed Raza going to go anywhere? He hasn't had any injury issues that we're aware of recently. He's one of the fittest guys on the tour. He's obviously very experienced. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're 
we we all like Ahmed Raza. He's he, he's got that leadership skills quality that uh, any good captain has. A- another interesting point is that he he's a, a local, grew up in the UAE. He's you know he spent his whole life there. And and in the past, the UAE board has has kind of shuffled around their captains to to try and have a a local captaining at big events. You know you think of Mohammed Tokir. Uh, who who was an actual Emirati citizen, which is is quite rare for cricket in the UAE, um, and and he was the captain in 2015 and and supplanted Karam Khan. I actually think Tukia did a pretty good job um, in, in that tournament, but you know it's it, it's interesting to kind of look at it historically where they get rid of a, a captain and and bring in a local, and here they're doing the opposite with um again you know I mean no no disrespect to CP Rizwan who who's quite a good player, but yeah it is it is very strange and he's not. You know, he hasn't grown up in the UAE like Ahmed Raza, so even that reasoning doesn't really make sense if we're looking ahead to the World Cup. Yeah, just a very strange decision, and especially since he still has the ODI captaincy. You know, if you are looking at succession planning, which is, you know, the fig leaf, um, as you alluded to, you'd go with someone younger, but you'd also maybe at the end of this kind of set of assignments, you know, at the end of the World Cup, then you sort of reassess where Ahmed Raza is and, and where he's going to be kind of looking in the next few years of, of his career, which is, you know, certainly in the second half of his career. So, yeah, it's, it's all just very strange. I don't really know what's going on there. The fact that Ahmed Raza has kept his one-day international captaincy tells us that it hasn't been some sort of gross mis- misconduct that's led to Raza losing the T20I captaincy. And when you think about the, the great minds of the associate game, whether you're talking about men's and women's cricket. Ahmed Raza is one name that is certainly one of the first to come up when when you're talking about some of the great leaders in the emerging world. You know, the likes of Raza, uh, Erasmus, uh, on the women's side when Sonner and Tifok did so much for Thai cricket in that growth to becoming what Thailand are in the women's game. Ahmed Raza is just another name that you you throw in that sentence when you tell people who who are the, the best captains in the associate world. Ahmed Raza is normally one of the first on that list. At best, this is team and board mismanagement. And at worst, it's just a complete scandal. I mean, looking at the way that that press release was handled, it wasn't particularly well worded. We don't really have any clear indication as to what has actually gone on. Ahmed Raza uh, has been silent in the aftermath of all of this. Well, he's, he's too classy to make a stink about it. Well, he is, but you would like to think that we'd have some sort of clarification from either UAE or from, from Ahmed Raza and his team working out what's actually happened here. You know, in T20I cricket, Ahmed Raza had a winning percentage of 66% in his time capping the side. I think it was over 28 games. When you take it from 2019, when he took it on a full-time basis, that winning percentage goes up to 68%. He's better than any other captain in UAE's history by winning percentage, assuming you, you add the threshold of a certain number of games. He took the team from one of the darkest times in its mm. history after the fixing scandal of 2019. The side probably accelerated to what they've become now, probably two or three years faster than what they should have. They've blooded the youth. They've got a great team. The leadership has been outstanding. They stormed the qualifier A earlier in the year. And then in the days leading up to an Asia Cup, and again, with months leading up to the T20 World Cup, you give that all up for for what? You give the captaincy to a man who's played seven T20 internationals since he debuted three years ago. UAE have played over 20 T20 internationals 
since then. So you could make the implication that when you look at their best 11, CP Rizman probably doesn't make the team. And again, CP Rizman could just be the person in the middle of all of this. But when you average 16 with the bat and you don't bowl, you've only played seven T20 internationals in the space of three years. I find it hard to justify him coming in as captain of the team. And again, you look at someone like Ahmed Raza and he's just the undoubted leader of that team. And for him not to be there as captain in Australia come two months from now when they are on our shores, Nick, oh, I suppose they're not your shores anymore with all due respect <laughs> given that you're in Iceland, but it's just going to be weird watching them trudge off the field after a win or a defeat and not seeing him at the front of the group. It it, it, it blows my little brain as to, as to what this is all about and who's responsible for all of this because it just seems to be one of the most illogical decisions I've seen in associate cricket pretty much ever since we've started emerging cricket and and there's been quite a few that would challenge but nowhere near as bad as this well and I mean you, you've made a, a comparison to Peter Boren uh, in terms of uh, you know basically he's, he's led them out of a difficult spot into you know, the promised land as it were of, of a World Cup appearance and then just get stumped yeah. just before getting there as, as we've alluded to I don't understand why it's happening I have nothing against CP Rizwan no. as I said I think he's a potentially a handy component of this team it is just very strange to bring him in like this and then you know going forward Ahmed Raza was dropped or I don't know didn't play in the the UAE's second match in the Asia Cup qualifier. So that was strange as well. The match against Singapore, he, he just wasn't there. So I don't know if that's going to be an ongoing thing or if he was, I don't know, rested or... Yeah, I don't know. So that's just kind of adding to the mystery around the, the, the situation. And I mean, a lot of this, you know, even if there was a good reason, whatever it might be, they should have communicated it. And if there wasn't a reason, then yeah, it's it's just a terrible, terrible decision. Yeah, succession planning is actually fine as a, as a kind of idea, but surely you'd go with someone like a, let's say, Vrita Aravin, who's going to be, you know, the backbone of the team for the next decade plus, as opposed to CP Rizwan, who probably doesn't have much longer than Ahmed Raza, if not shorter than Ahmed Raza, left in his career. I've spoken to someone who was at the ground watching on, and I won't reveal the source, but... Uh, they called CP Rizwan's captaincy a disgrace and the whole team looked rocked and shaky throughout. The team looked shell-shocked walking off the field. And it doesn't surprise me uh, after that. And, and just watching, and we don't have the rights to, to this tournament here in Australia, so we can't watch it for ourselves. But looking at the scorecard, if you can't defend 173 against the likes of Kuwait, who really are the fourth team on paper at this competition, then you have to wonder what went wrong and again we're just looking for some some more clarification on all of it because it's just something that came completely out of left field well yeah and, and to me that indicates that the team weren't informed of this and it wasn't a consultative decision at all and i don't know again we're speculating but it, it sounds like something that's just come straight from the top rather than necessarily being uh, any any more of a discussion with the actual guys who are going to have to deal with it on the field which again i mean robin singh being brought in you know, a, a little while ago, replacing Dougie Brown, who did such a good job to you know, to rebuild the team alongside Ahmed Raza. Uh, the, you know, those two guys were, were the, at the heart of their recovery. And, and a lot of what, you know, they're doing now is sort of the, the fruits of what they were doing, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when, when they had to clean out the team and, and, and rebuild. And, you know, the fact that Dougie Brown got let go and, and replaced with Robin Singh, I, I was always thought that was a bit strange because, you know, Robin Singh, he's one of those sort of part-time coaches. He does does some stuff in India. Flies in, does some stuff with the UAE. They, they kind of try and schedule stuff around him, which I think 
you know, as we saw with Zimbabwe and uh, and Rajput, I don't think that necessarily is the best model, and it doesn't always work very well. Uh, same, I mean, even you could make the case potentially with Pabudu Dasanayaka in, in, in Nepal and you know, having to fly in and, and deal with stuff and fly back home and, and being away from family. I just don't think that's a model that in this day and age where associate teams are actually trying to emulate the full-time professionals, I don't think that model really works. And Robin Singh being brought in again with his coaching record in India and, and, and whatnot, on paper, he, he's very qualified, but a lot of the time, you know, guys who do get parachuted in from the four-member world, they don't necessarily have the understanding of the associate game in the same way as, say, someone like a Dougie Brown does. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced that Robin Singh was the right fit for this team. And if this is a Robin Singh decision, um, again, if, uh, you know, we're, we're, we are speculating, but if this was a decision from Robin Singh, I think he needs to take responsibility for it. And, you know, rather than leaving everyone in the dark and, and, Clearly, as, as as you say from their performance against Q8, the, the team is uh, you know the, the team is disrupted, and if they potentially miss qualification for the Asia Cup because of this, um, you know that's that's a black mark against his coaching record. So yeah, I, I, I'm I've never been entirely sold on Robin Singh. I, I understand you know oh yes he has experience in full member cricket and and all of that, but yeah a lot of the time I just feel like associates and this this goes with players and with coaches <laughs> you know they they just have this idea that oh well if if someone has played slash coached in the full member world then they're necessarily they're going to be better than someone who's coming from an associate background uh, which I don't think the evidence really bears that out and, and you know just because Robin Singh played for India and coaches the Mumbai Indians that doesn't in my view mean that he's necessarily better than Dougie Brown or any other coach who doesn't have those kind of high-profile qualifications. Again, I don't think we've even scratched the surface on this story in all of its forms. So I don't think we've even come close to reporting the end of this story, and I'm sure there'll be more in the coming days, uh, weeks, and months in regards to all of this. As mentioned, the T20 World Cup is in October, and if they don't progress out of the first round, then I'm sure there'll be even more questions after the team. But or if there is any more news, uh, you'll hear about it both on the pod and on the website as well. So make sure to keep your eyes and ears open for that. And just to look at the Asian Cup qualifier, as we are recording before the tournament actually ends, we'll make sure to give it a, a proper wrap next week once it is run and done. But as mentioned, UAE lost that opening match to Kuwait. They did come back and, and beat Singapore. Singapore currently... Uh, 0 from 2, and the only teams out of the only team out of the running for uh, that spot, the winner of the qualifier will be in India and Pakistan's group at the Asia Cup next week. But, geez, I mean, looking at this at this tournament now, it, it Kuwait have really opened up the entire competition. Hong Kong, you could probably argue, are, are probably in the best position to to really make a push now, assuming that Kuwait can't repeat what they've done already. Uh, UAE forced to, to play catch-up uh, with that win against Singapore, but needing a win against Hong Kong on the last day, which will ultimately prove to be the defining match in all of it, uh, it's meant that this has been a pretty open uh, competition of four teams, Nick. Well, yeah, and, and that's another sort of uh, unfortunate consequence of, of this brouhaha, I guess, <laughs> around the around the captaincy, is that it's overshadowed what is shaping up to be a really exciting tournament. And yeah, that last day showdown between the UAE and Hong Kong, I think is going to be very exciting. Hong Kong sort of quietly going about their business, pretty clinical against Singapore. 
Singapore, again, thinking back to last week's conversation about their performance in the Challenge League, and, and I think they're pretty beatable, and, and Vanuatu will be disappointed they couldn't get over the line against them. You know, they, they've they just underwhelmed uh, in this tournament. Again, they're, they're kind of at a loose end. They do have a lot of good players coming through, but at the same time, they also they just don't quite have that coherence that they, they did a couple of years ago when they were on the kind of on the up and up. Um, Kartik Mayapan, I think, is, is worth pointing out from the UAE. A bright a spot um, for them in the midst of uh, this this mess. You know, their young leg spinner who's who's come through the local system. He's an exciting player, and uh, hopefully he gets more opportunities going forward. But uh, he was he was key to the win against Singapore. And, yeah, I mean, again, the UAE, realistically, they, they're still the best team here. But, you know, a lot of the time you see if a team is distracted or, or you know, in turmoil, because of off-the-field decisions, they, they tend not to perform on the field. Yeah, case in point, and to even go further back, looking at, at League 2, it wasn't a great series for UAE either, being overrun by the USA, who have overtaken them on the League 2 table, moving into third, and with games in hand on uh, their Emirati rivals. It was a good series for Scotland, went close to a perfect week, uh, only falling short with a defeat to USA in the last over of the last game of the particular tri-series in Aberdeen. It was great to have international cricket back in Aberdeen, uh, the hometown of friend of the show, Kyle Kutzer, who got to play on home turf, which was great to see. Thrilling last over finish, which which we've become accustomed to, especially in USA cricket and in League Two cricket in general. Uh, you feel Callum McLeod back in form as one of the, the great associate bats at the moment, making runs for fun. Uh, it was Barrington in the last tri-series, and, and now it's crossed over into the, the sweet machine that is Callum McLeod. Uh, the League Two table has shaken out a little bit. You would have to say that, barring a disaster, Scotland have secured a spot for the Cricket World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe next year. It would take something ridiculous to happen for them to drop out of the top three now, you would think. I think they will overrun Oman in that top spot, first of all, and I'm not sure if the other chases will actually reach them either, but... It was a good series in Aberdeen. Once again, the, the sparring partners of Andrew Leonard and, and Peter Della Pena uh, on hand to, to commentate that as well, which was good to watch, and even watching the highlights back was good too. Uh, Scotland again flexing their muscles three out of four, although USA doing the business in some respects, picking up some important points and against a, a team close to them on the table in League Two. Yeah, USA has now just snuck into third place in that uh, automatic qualification for the 2023 Cricket World Cup qualifier. Uh, UAE does have two games in hand and they're only one point behind, so they, they've got the opportunity to make it up. But as, as we always say, runs on the board. Uh, Scotland, I agree, I don't think anyone's going to catch them. Barring a you know a total disaster in the next little while, um, they, they should be pretty safe. Callum McLeod that you talked about, a couple of centuries in the series, thank you very much. He's just moved up to second on the uh, League Two run charts. He's only 47 runs behind Jatinder Singh and he's 12 matches in hand. So he should <laughs> uh, make a pretty good case at the top of that um, at the top of that run table when the all the matches are, are, are run and done. Aaron Jones was quite good for the USA there. A lot of the time we talk about him being a bit of a, a bit sluggish, but he hit 123 of 87 in that loss against Scotland. Um, obviously, McLeod's 117 of 91 uh, sort of got them over the line, but uh, yeah, Mark Watt again, very good. Um, you know, Scotland—they're just a well-oiled machine. Uh, that last match against the USA, though, oh dear, uh, I, I don't know. I think 
poor old um Safian Sharif. Might still be having nightmares about that. Just he was a little bit unlucky. Yeah, yeah. There was that wide one that that kind of went for an edge, and then Cross fumbled the boundary there to to let it go through. But yeah, I don't know. And then I guess if you want to be harsh, you could probably blame Gavin Main as well in the preceding over with that terrible delivery, a slowable bouncer that just. I don't even know what he was trying to do, but yeah, obviously it just just sat up there to be hit to the boundary. And then, yeah, Sharif with a kind of waist-high nothing delivery that Malhotra just tucked into to to smash it onto the hill. Yeah, that that they Scotland probably should have closed out that game, but uh you know, these things happen in cricket and and full credit to the US for for getting over the line in a thriller. It's it's this finish, you know, looking back at the points table, this finish might end up being kind of decisive in terms of them They've just overtaken the UAE, and and as we said, they do have the UAE do have a couple of games in hand. But um, you know, I think the USA look like they're getting a bit of momentum up again. Looking towards the other end of this table, Namibia have played the least matches, and they're on 18 points from 18 matches. So can they overtake the US? Yeah, I guess they've they've been kind of patchy in a lot of their tri series. You know, they blow hot and cold. They look great one match. You know, they they win by 100 runs. And then they fumble around and, and, and lose a match that they should win. So, yeah, Namibia is kind of the big question of whether they can sneak into that third spot. But at the moment, the USA are on 13 wins and 13 losses. UAE's on 12 wins and 11 losses. Namibia's on 9 and 9. So it's all, you know, getting that logjam, as we keep talking about in the middle there. Nepal, I think, are, are starting to show, you know, their 8 wins and, and 11 losses from 20 games. So they still have a decent run home. But, yeah, they're, they're starting to fall behind. And yeah, obviously PNG, one win from 20 matches, yeah, really struggling there. But yeah, I, I think the ones to keep an eye on, definitely Namibia. Uh, and to a lesser extent, Nepal, they could maybe stuff someone else's series up, but I, I don't see Nepal getting into that third spot. Both Namibia and Nepal have uh, quite a few home series to go in the competition, and that's definitely somewhere we'll, they'll need to bank as many points as, as possible at this stage. I think Namibia might have two series almost back-to-back in the space of about a fortnight at home. Uh, and it just means that, yeah, there's four teams basically gunning for one spot now. You would assume that Scotland are in, in the clear, and it just makes it all the more difficult for the other four teams. And, of course, uh, our friends at PNG who will finish the competition at the bottom. All's not lost, though, of course. They moved to a Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff where, uh, sorry, the bottom four of, of League Two will move to that competition. And the winners of each Challenge League leg also meet them there in a 16 competition. And then from there, two teams go to the Cricket World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe. We talked about Jersey last week. We talked about Canada leading their group as well in, in all of that on last week's show. So plenty to talk about there last week uh, if you want to sort of a, a catch-up and an update from, from everything going on uh, in the Challenge League after Nick, yourself, and, and Tim were in Canada watching some of that action up close and personal. So, again, plenty of pathway cricket now on the path to India 2023. Uh, we'll be shown on ISIS ATV and we'll be here, of course, reporting all of it as well. Let's move on to Cricket World Cup Super League and the Netherlands hosting Pakistan. And again, it was a case of what if, I suppose, for the Dutch coming ever so close to, to stealing one win at least from, from that. They end up going down 
3-0 with Pakistan winning all 30 points in the Super League series. In the in the context of Super League now for the Dutch, that there's it doesn't really mean a terrible lot given that they will be finishing last and with the ODI Super League being scrapped in, in future cycles. And we'll talk about that and the fallout from all of that in regards to developing and, and, and crafting the next generation of Dutch talent in a moment. But we'll start with, with the action on the field. Uh, more missed opportunities in a way, especially in that third match where they consigned Pakistan to a score in the low 200s. They just weren't able to chase down in Rotterdam. I know that the wicket probably wasn't as conducive to batting as some of the other wickets we've seen, not only in Super League, but even at home in the Dutch summer. Baz Delater making runs, Vikram Jit Singh making runs, and we'll talk about them, I suppose, in a moment. But yeah, it's just a case of another missed opportunity for the Dutch to, to steal a win against Pakistan. And even though they were missing a bunch of their county talent, you know, up to, well, at least half a dozen players out on county duty, they put in a good performance, but ultimately fell short again, Nick. Yeah, the series, it's been interesting. They're, they're sort of the, the top class of all-stars rather than a full Netherlands team. And plus Tom Cooper. Well, plus, well yes, yeah. Um, Tom Cooper returning to the Netherlands is, has been a great boon. He was He's very good in this series, providing... I guess they're quite a young team with a lot of these guys coming through who who, who have staked their claim through the Dutch system uh, rather than, you know, uh, county or, or what have you. Tom Cooper, I think, batting down in the middle order is the kind of guy that you need to just provide a bit of bit of stability, a bit of experience, a cool head, um, you know, all, all those things. Um, Scott Edwards as well ha- had a really good um, good time as as captain. I've I've liked him as captain. I think he's been uh, a good leader, and I can see him doing quite a good job over the next few years. Assuming you know the Netherlands get any fixtures, which is kind of an open question. But yeah, as you talk about, just a very frustrating series here, and it's interesting. Bertus de Jong had a good thread uh, on Twitter talking about how you know <laughs> if you showed him the the Netherlands lineup at the start of the summer, he would have laughed at the idea of them winning any games. But as it turns out, they probably should have won maybe one or even two of, of the, the matches here. You know, the, the, the first match, they only lost by, I think, about 15 runs. And then, yeah, that last one, they, they lost by, I think, nine runs. That first game as well was, was a good example of them fighting back. And even the, even the, the, the third game where they, uh, you know, Pakistan were, I think, about two for 100. Babar Azam was cruising. Uh, he got 90-odd in the end. And, and the Netherlands managed to pull them back and bowl them out for 206, which was, yeah, very chaseable. Uh, yeah, they just couldn't quite get over the line, and and they've they've had that block a few times. You know, they've, they've looked like they might do it or they could do it, and then they just they just can't quite get there. A lot of positives, but then see, this is this is the problem of the Super League being cancelled. Is you know, if the Netherlands were going to be there over the next cycle, you'd think, wow, you know, look at this team, look at all these young guys coming through, guys like Vikram Singh, Viv Kingman's back in form, taking early wickets, Arjen Dutt has, you know, <laughs> he's improved out of sight. Yeah. You know, he, he even a year or two ago, was a very average, just a medium-paced trundler, and, and now he's actually bowling well and, and containing pretty good batting lineups like Pakistan. And yeah, as we say, Bastelader has just been getting better and better with the bat. And in fact, with the ball as well, he, he took a number of wickets this series and, and helped uh, keep Pakistan under wraps. Um, but yeah, so you, you'd think you're looking at all these young guys coming through. They're all in their sort of late teens, early 20s, um, and, and there's a lot of potential. But then how many games against you know high quality opposition are they going to get over the next cycle or, or even decade to really develop you know someone like a Bastelator will only keep getting better if he keeps playing against good opposition same thing for Vikram Singh same thing for Aryan Dutt I, I just 
I don't think they're going to be able to reach their potential because they'll get maybe like one match against a, a touring full member who wants to warm up before their series in England or something. Maybe if they can, you know, beg, borrow and scrape anything together rather than having the certainty of the, the Super League structure, which is, again, I mean, I know we keep going back to it, but the fact it's been cancelled. And I mean, yeah, maybe maybe the Netherlands wouldn't have qualified to get back into it and, and, and we can sort of, that's a hypothetical down the road, but uh, yeah, just they don't have the opportunity to keep improving. And that's what's so frustrating because they can keep improving and they've got the raw materials to be a much better side. And even in this raw stage, they, they pushed Pakistan twice. They really should have won one of those games. They probably should have won a few more games over their summer against, not against England. Uh, we, we've talked about that series. England are just you know, way too good, but a number of the other series, they probably could have pinched a win if they had a bit more experience. And they just haven't been able to get over the line because of inexperience. And, and they just, yeah, again, it is it is just frustrating that they won't be able to accumulate that experience and become a really good team that can challenge these these higher ranked sides. And I know I'm I'm preaching to the converted here for sure, but like this is the difference really between the Netherlands and Pakistan is that you know the Netherlands don't have the opportunities to keep improving and so every time they're coming up against a full member they have to be on their best day you know Pakistan can can be a bit sloppy because they have they've done it so many times and they have this experience to draw on Netherlands don't have that and they won't be able to get that because the schedule uh, as decided by the full members and this isn't this isn't necessarily uh, Pakistan. Pakistan are actually quite good with with visiting associates, but it is frustrating that the the top ranked teams are the ones who decide the schedule, and the top ranked teams are the ones who ensure that the lower ranked teams don't get the opportunities to improve, and and so that they can't break out of this this cycle. And yeah, anyway, we, we've we've talked about the Super League a lot, but it is one of the great shames that it's been cancelled because it just provided the Netherlands with so much opportunity, and and you can see what they've done with that opportunity. You've summed that up so well. And just to kind of tie up everything that you've said, I think the best way to learn is is to do. And a lot of these Dutch players were learning by playing against the best opposition. And to see the likes of Vikram Singh, Baz Deleida, Arian Dutt, Shahriz Ahmed play at this level, I mean, granted, they might not have even had the opportunity considering the county players, well, they didn't have mandatory release to, to play. And I use in inverted commas here because they should have been allowed to play and they, and they weren't. But again, it just goes to show what's going to happen in the next cycle of, of international cricket. And granted, you know, with the Future Tours program, it's only set by the full members. There is no consideration for what the associate members want to do. And the associate members are at the mercy of the ICC here because the associate members are relying on well, whatever pathway events and whatever events you have to lead into to Cricket World Cups, uh, to T20 World Cups, etc., that's all they really have to play with and play for. They can organise bilateral series, probably geographically. You know, the likes of Scotland and, and the Netherlands will probably play each other in the next cycle of international associate cricket because that's probably all that they can afford. But just look at some of the quality here. I mean, could you imagine what would have happened if the Netherlands stole a win against, say, the West Indies like they could have done earlier in the summer or... You know, they put in a couple of really good performances against New Zealand away from home in, in completely different conditions and then played against Pakistan at a pretty high level here. I mean, Afghanistan are in the top six in Cricket World Cup Super League at the moment. I think they've won 10 matches out of 12. And, you know, if, if you were to say to someone six, eight years ago, and we know that their rise was ridiculously quick, but again, it came against playing against 
better opposition than them and slowly moving their way up the old World Cricket League structure and eventually beating full members. And they were the beneficiaries of playing in a region where playing international cricket against the likes of Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan and India is a lot easier because geographically they're, they're on a doorstep, right? So, you know, for the Dutch, I, I worry that, you know, we will have players either stagnate or even regress because they just don't get that challenge of, of playing at the international level. And it's only re- me sort of really venting about what's going on. But the top class, it's showing that it can produce international standard players so long as those players get the chance to actually go to that next level and, and test themselves against the best uh, yeah, as you said, basically a top class all stars side plus Tom Cooper, who was a great addition to come back into the, into the team, and you know we'll see them out here for the T20 World Cup, and yeah, I think they should have high hopes of what they can achieve, and hopefully they learn quite a bit from what they've taken from the international summer. You know, you've only got to look as well at Namibia's T20 World Cup last year and see what they've done to take their game to the next level for them as well. So it's on the table if the Dutch won it at the T20 World Cup, but you worry, you know, in in, in future Cricket World Cup pathways uh, on the 50-over side, you do worry, you know, where the match is going to come from, how they're going to organise themselves, and ultimately how they develop as, as cricketers and as a team. Now, one thing we could see happen in the next little bit in terms of international cricket or, or cricket at the elite level at least is the boom and the future impact of T20 franchise leagues and how it changes the ecosystem of elite level cricket and what the potential fallout and what the potential consequences and ramifications are for the likes of some of the associates best. We have seen a number of players from around the associate world nominate themselves for the BBL and we'll talk about that in a second. I want to move firstly to UAE and talk about their new T20 league coming up and there have been a number of associate players who have been picked up uh, around a couple of real highlights, the likes of Bilal Khan, Ruben Trumpleman, just to kind of throw a few names out there. You know, there is a list on our site that Tom Grunshaw's put together for that. One curious addition to that list of associate players and again we're using uh inverted commas and no one can really see me without the uh the advent of a camera here wayne Matson is a cricketer that people in the uk will be aware of a, uh, a county pro a reputable county pro at that by chance has an italian passport and has been signed by a team in this uae league uh that begins next year the golf giants the Gulf Giants, uh, yes, and all their fans. Uh, there is a problem with this selection, and, and for people sort of outside the associate cricket sphere, probably aren't aware, but Wayne Madsen, despite having an Italian passport, has never represented Italy. To our knowledge, has never hinted at even playing for Italy at the international level. Now, a few people around will, will ask, you know, well, what about the likes of, say, Jay Dernback or, or other players who have gone down this route before? Now... At least they've played international cricket for their associate member country to, to kind of give this some sort of legitimacy. This is the first time I think we've ever seen a player like Wayne Madsen try to go down this route. I think it's probably a bridge too far and it's probably too much of a stretch for us to truly get behind a signing like Wayne Madsen as an associate player when, for all we know, he has no intention of playing international cricket for Italy or being part of the associate cricket international sphere. Well, not only has he not played for Italy, he was. There have been some reports that he was actually approached by the Italians to play for them, and he turned them down. So he's sort of actively not wanting to. And to then, you know, 
use his Italian passport as as a kind of way of gaming the system in this. Um, which is, I mean, it's it's a pretty low bar to start with. Yeah, they only need a couple of associate players in the squad. I don't think there's any rules around having to even play them, and it's not a huge ask to get these guys in the squad in the first place. So it's very strange. I don't really understand why the golf giants coach Andy Flower. Maybe he's just mates with Wayne Madsen. I don't know, but why would you pull this sort of trick, or, or you know, why would you use this loophole just so that you can get Wayne Madsen? I mean, no disrespect to Wayne Madsen, as you say, he's a a journeyman player who who has a, a pretty successful career, but he's not exactly a big star who's going to draw in the crowds. So why bother doing this just so you can get Wayne Madsen? And I, I'm not. I mean, this is maybe this is another example of you know people who are involved in the full member world and they just sort of assume that oh well if someone's playing in in England county system they must be better than an associate player. But yeah, why why are these teams so desperate to avoid selecting actual associates? You know. If you want a batter who can bowl some off spin, which is that's that's Wayne Madsen's profile, why not go with Erasmus, Herod Erasmus, who's one of the best batters in the associate world and also bowls off spin, or Stephen Taylor, you know, destructive top order batter for the USA, also bowls off spin. Asad Vala, who's been you know carrying PNG for the last I don't know probably a decade at least. I don't know. It, it just doesn't make sense to me as to why they go through all this effort just so they can get Wayne Madsen. Yeah, very strange. I think it would it would be quite funny if the Italian board denied his NOC. Uh, I know we've we've had some discussions around uh, NOCs and and Chris Lynn and and various other kind of international players going off to the UAE for this tournament. But you know if you're gonna you know live live by the Italian passport, die by the Italian passport. If I was in the Italian cricket setup, I don't see any reason why I would approve this you know to happen so yeah I, I don't know it just doesn't make sense to me and more broadly it's just a symptom of this idea that you know associate cricket is just second rate and i mean that's just a structural problem in the way that it's treated by well by the icc but also by sort of cricket fans more generally yeah i'll be shocked looking at, at federazione cricket italia if i've got that governing body name right i think i've come close there my italian's not very good uh nicky might be better at it than me but uh, surely they can't issue this man an noc to, to play for or under some sort of italian banner I, i'm not sure what the legalities are in regards to this but well i mean i think the whole noc system might come crumbling down as soon as it seems like a bit of a, a paper tiger a lot of the time in terms of whether it's actually legal um i'm pretty sure that if someone actually went to court over the whole NOC system, it would end up being a, a restraint of trade, but, you know, I'm not uh, remotely qualified uh, to, to make any kind of legal assessments. But that, that's my suspicion, is my suspicion is that the whole thing is kind of a house of cards that's just waiting to fall down anyway. So, I mean, maybe Wayne Madsen will get denied an NOC and, and the, the whole thing will come crumbling down. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I don't see any uh, incentive. Colpack. Well, yeah. Bossman. Yeah. Madsen. <laughs> this is setting precedent. But, yeah, so, I, I yeah, I, you're right. I don't see any incentive for the Italian board to give him an NOC, uh, assuming he needs one, because, as, he, as we've discussed, you know, he turned them down in the past. At least Jade Burnback, as you said. <laughs> At least Jade Burnback actually turned out for Italy, got hit out of the tournament by Denmark and Germany because, you know, he was well past his prime. But, you know, he did put the shirt on at least. Yeah, and again, it comes back to the point of us saying, well, the advent of franchise T20 leagues could be a boon for some of the best associate talent around the place if they feature in leagues in 
UAE or South Africa or the Caribbean Premier League, which you know has happened in the past. But if those spots are only going to be taken up by full member players getting through from a backdoor move with no intention to play international cricket for the associate nation they claim to be from, then it would set a bad precedent if it was to happen because you never know who else is going to be trying this with no real bond or, or tie to uh, an associate international member. And eventually it only would only perpetuate the problems that we have in international cricket of, of the have and, and have nots, unfortunately. So hoping we find a resolution into all of that soon. Keeping with the T20 franchise leagues or domestic leagues on the circuit. Uh, The BBL has released its full player draft nomination form filled with a ton of associates from around the world. Plenty from the Netherlands. Uh, We had Bilal Khan, George Munzee, Norman Vanua, uh, David Visa, Alishan Sharifu from uh, UAE. More than a handful. I think it was nine from the USA. Uh, Quite a funny moment with uh, Subash Kakarel listed as Canadian when he's uh, (laughs) definitely Nepali. Kairav was a, a nomination from Canada. Where do we kind of see how these guys fit in? I really can't see any at all being picked up by a BBL team in the draft. I mean, plenty of them could do a job for the Melbourne Renegades having watched them last season. They were (laughs) terrible. But, you know, there's only a certain number of jobs here in the BBL for, you know, a finite number of of players. And with the, the huge number of people putting up their hand for the draft across the world, you know, we're talking in the several hundreds it would take something ridiculously special for a player to get picked up it also doesn't help that the draft happens before the t20 world cup meaning that it's it's going to be quite difficult for a lot of these players to make a good impression at the t20 world cup and magically find their way into a bbl team but uh you've got to be in it to win and you've got to put your name in to to get picked do you see anyone doing a job anywhere nick even at the renegades I mean, yeah, you you have to be in it to win it. I, I guess a lot of these nominations are kind of uh, more in hope than expectation. Maybe it's it is a bit strange though. Just looking at um, you know, who's put their name forward and and who hasn't. I find it baffling that Erasmus hasn't turned up in any of these drafts. Uh, I don't think he's been entered. I mean, JJ Smith's at least entered a couple of drafts. Um, and he's he's got picked up in the um the ILT20 in the UAE. But yeah, Erasmus just hasn't hasn't turned up anywhere and i find that very strange i don't know if that's a deliberate choice on his part or if he just doesn't think he'll get picked or i don't know my, my theory is that francois has him on the books at the law firm and uh, uh. he's doing a couple of days there I, <laughs> i'm sure they're probably listening and they could give us a little bit more detail let's see if, let's see if they're yeah well i mean that may yeah, maybe that's it and and he's uh too busy uh dealing with legal cases in namibia to to go off to the big bash i don't know but um yeah i mean david visa has a proven track record in in franchise cricket a lot of this stuff will be kind of they'll have to juggle it between the big bash and the the uae league but yeah i don't know a couple of Zimbabweans have put their name forward, but not Sikander Raza, who's been in the form of his life. I don't know. It's just quite strange. You know, I think Raza would have been a great pick in in the Big Bash. You know, handy bowler, explosive batter, great fielder. You know, what more do you want? Um, <laughs> yeah, Sebash Kakarel uh, being listed as coming from Canada was, was yeah, as you said. <laughs> Apparently, he, he put his uh, his sort of his name down as being from CAN, CAN, the Cricket Association of Nepal which uh, some sort of got, uh, you know, some crossed wires yeah, that... uh, in, in <laughs> when when he came, you know, when it got through to Australia and they assumed he was Canadian. But uh, yeah, strange that um, Kairav was the only nomination 
from Canada, you'd think someone like a Asad bin Zafar would be a good pickup, or or even you know Navneet Dhaliwal, who's who's been in good form, or you know they they do have a few guys who I would say are much better candidates to be picked up than a, a guy who's hasn't played any senior cricket and didn't really do a whole lot in the under 19s World Cup either. But yeah, I guess uh, can't get picked if you don't put your name down. So good luck to him. Um, but yeah. Again, I think a lot of this, I mean, there's about 50 English players putting the names down. I'm not convinced that, you know, the the 50th best English player in the list is going to be better than most of these top level associate guys. But my suspicion is that, again, if you're a Big Bash franchise, you see someone who's a county player versus someone who's played for you know PNG or the USA or whatever, you're probably going to go with the county player, even if there's no actual you know basis for that. I saw Darren Stevens oh, love uh, it. nominated himself for <laughs> for the BBL. Uh, forty-five years of age. Yeah, I think I think Stevens is a great big bash pick. Actually, Got, you know, bit of a cult hero. <laughs> I think his contract's about to run out in county cricket, so it might might be one last hurrah uh, of sorts for for Darren Stevens. But your point stands. You know, if the the fiftieth best English player is better than any of these associate players, so I'll, I'd love I'd love to see it. Uh. Finally, we've seen the qualifications of Scotland and Indonesia in the under-19s Women's T20 World Cup, which is to be held in South Africa next year. The attention of the tournament and its qualification system turns to Africa for the Africa qualifier. It's a, a brutal competition with nine teams battling for one spot out of Africa, albeit with two groups uh, semi-finals, uh, a final, and uh, as mentioned, only the winner progressing. Compare that to something like the Americas, where the USA essentially qualified by default because yes. uh, no other teams had put up under-19 women's teams. Also worth noting that the USA women uh, under-19 level did win a recent series against the West Indies, so they are the real deal uh, in the Americas and most likely the strongest team in the region anyway. But to bring it back to Africa, two groups, Tanzania, Rwanda, Nigeria, Malawi and Mozambique feature in Group A. And then in Group B, hosts Botswana take on Sierra Leone, Namibia and Uganda. Uh, again, uh, the winner of the final will be the team to progress to South Africa 2023. Fascinating one. We, we will see a lot of names for the first time at this competition, although there are a number of already senior-capped international players playing at the tournament or likely to be playing at the tournament given the, the hotbed of talent in African cricket at the moment. It will be fiercely contested. I think looking at it, the likes of Uganda and, and Namibia will probably fancy themselves out of Group B, but you've got to say it's probably a very open field, not only with those two teams consigned to the same group, but we just don't know, quite frankly, some of the other talent that could be around the region. It, it's set to be a pretty fascinating tournament, Nick. Yeah, as we've we've talked about in the past, you know, African women's cricket is is one of the fastest growing regions in terms of just the number of teams that are competing and, and getting better and better. I think Tanzania is another one to keep an eye on. Their senior women's team is is one of the better teams at associate level in well, at least in the African region, and you know they're, they're sort of there or thereabouts uh, even in, in general associate play. Rwanda again, their women's team is is another another bright spot. They haven't quite been able to push on, so it'll be interesting to see how their their talents coming through. Nigeria is another one that's um that's growing rapidly. They're they're doing a lot of work. You know they're building good facilities around the place. They're they're trying to. Um, get more uh, more female participation. I think, yeah, as you say, Namibia and Uganda are probably the favourites in Group B, and especially with Namibia, who who have been quite good of late, 
at, at the senior level, it'll be interesting to see the next generation of talent coming through and, and how they're replacing that. And this is the thing with the under-19s is that a lot of the time it sort of gives you a, a bit of an indication of where each of these teams is tracking, maybe more so than the senior team. So whether Uganda and Namibia continue their dominance at under-19s level uh, is, is kind of interesting in terms of, you know, do, do they have the kind of the setup back home to back up what their senior team is achieving? Because the senior team is often sort of the product of you know, investment at the top level and the professional standards and, and the under-19s is more a reflection of the, the local domestic scene. So that's one to keep an eye on. As you say, pretty brutal format. Only one winner out of nine teams. This goes back to our, our sort of the discussions around the different potential formats for qualifying for the World Cup. Is it fair that Africa only has one slot available? Yeah, that's that's kind of an ongoing conversation around the, the, the regional structures. I don't know. I, I think a better way of looking at it is not necessarily that oh you know africa only gets one the, the americas the, the u.s gets a free pass a better question would be to, to look at why all the associates get sort of force-fed through this kind of meat grinder and there's only one that comes out uh rather than having the actual the four members dropping down to have to qualify at regional level uh, and having a much more um you know having more slots available and if if an associate happens to beat a full member and, and finish ahead of them they just qualify rather than having you know only only one spot available out of all the associates and having that segregation because i, I just think it makes way more sense to me that the full members actually have to qualify if you're going to have a regional qualification structure rather than having you know, wildly different regional sizes actually get the four members involved so that there's a bit more integrity to each of the regional competitions. Well summed up, Nick. And again, looking forward to the under-19 women's qualifiers of Africa from the 1st of the 13th of September, hosted in Botswana. And yeah, the winner of that tournament joining the likes of Indonesia, Scotland and USA as some of the uh, the future teams to watch, I suppose you could say, in the associate world on, on the women's side. Uh, albeit via uh, the Under-19 tournament. That's everything in the Emerging game this week. Uh, for more, log on to EmergingCricket.com, wherever you are around the world. Uh, but for now, on behalf of myself, Daniel Bezik, as well as Nick Skinner, and an absent Tim Cutler, who is, I'm sure, working very hard to ensure the qualifier in Vanuatu is up to speed. That's everything in the Emerging game, and we'll speak to you next week.